Hello, everybody. My name is Andrew Gomison, and it is my privilege to welcome you to this edition of the Speaking for Him podcast. For those who may be new here, every week I come to you with this show as a way of giving you some encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life because it is not a sprint, it is a marathon. So I'm excited that you have joined me. If you're a first-time listener, or even if you've been listening for some time, I really do appreciate feedback. So make sure that you reach out with the feedback that will roll at the end of the show and let me know what you think of this episode. Share it with family and friends if you enjoy it and are encouraged by it. That's how we grow the audience of the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm excited today to share with you part one of an interview that I did with a new friend, uh, Ginny Burton. Ginny has overcome a lot and has been transformed uh, by the power of Christ from someone who spent a lot of time in prison and addicted to drugs to someone who is out of prison and is thriving and living a victorious life. And I think you'll really enjoy this interview that I'm about to share with you. And as we kick off this episode, I'm going to do something a little different, and that is I'm going to share with you a little bit of her story as a teaser. I'm going to show you a picture, two pictures really, a before and after. And you will look at the pictures, and they will be hard to look at. But then you will hear the story and realize that the pictures are in fact beautiful, profound. And when the story is finished, you will believe that no soul is irredeemable and that truly anything is possible. And here it is. This is Jenny Burton, then and now, in the depths of despair at the height of her glory. When I look at the photos, it's almost unbelievable. It's like it's another person that I'm looking at. What it means to me is that I feel like I've proven to myself that uh, that I'm done. I'm done with the cycles and the patterns that have been so destructive in my life that I have become a different person, that I am the person that I always was in my heart but didn't think I was ever going to be able to become. This is Ginny's story. I never had a chance. I didn't. I had two drug addict parents. I had a mom that was extremely insecure with mental illness. She introduced me to drugs at a really young age. My life started out in violence, and those are the things that became normal to me. And so that's how I navigated life. I never had a chance. Her mother introduced her to marijuana at age six, got her using meth at age 12. By 14, she was smoking crack. At 16, she was raped by a man who bought drugs from her mother. By 17, she'd attempted suicide. At 23, she was a full-blown heroin addict. She and a guy named Jack used to find drug dealers who were in the country illegally and robbed them at gunpoint. And on and on it went, raging chaos, hell-bent on destruction. A year ago, she described it all this way. When you're stuck on the street and you smell like feces and you haven't showered in forever and you can't make it into a social service agency during working hours because you're too busy trying to feed your addiction and your addiction is bigger than you, you're hopeless. You can't stand your life. You would rather be dead than alive. I spent most of my addiction wishing that somebody would just blow me away. You know, and I would never wish my story on anybody else, but I'm grateful for the way that mine unfolded because I think that 
it's supposed to be the way that it is so that I can reach as many people as possible to let them know that there is a way out. 17 felony convictions, three trips to the state prison, and each time she got clean and thought about her life. This picture is from the last time she was in prison, 33 months at the Mission Creek Correction Center for Women in 2009. The last time she was arrested was 2012, and she was tired and numb and finished with it all. Like, I knew when he put the handcuffs on me and put me in his car, I knew that I was going to be okay. I knew that my life was going to change. And it was then, in that moment, that I made the decision to turn it around, no matter what it took. She fought to get into drug court in King County, got into a treatment program. She started volunteering and eventually got a job. For five years, she worked for Catholic Community Services, serving the homeless and the addicted. She started hiking in 2014, and she felt like it centered her. By 2017, she was climbing seriously. In one four-week stretch, she summited the three highest peaks in Washington. And she started going to school, community college at first, and then she got a scholarship to the University of Washington. You know, I was entering into a bunch of areas I'd never experienced before. Um, I had a lot of insecurity at first. I was significantly older than the majority of people I was sitting in classrooms with. And uh, I was reading up to 350 pages a week and in a field I had no understanding of, which is political science. So it's definitely been hard. She thrived. Life opened up. She made the all-academic team at the UW. She earned awards and more scholarships. And now, now at the age of 48, she has graduated with honors and with something else, self-respect. Oh, my gosh. I'm unbelievably proud of myself. So much so that, um, that it makes me want to cry. I'm extremely proud of Ginny, too. This is the news story that gave me an introduction to her and we'll allude a little bit more to the story in the interview but suffice it to say I scrolled past the story I was interested in um, her, her story and hearing more and circumstances led me to find her Facebook page I clicked on it and a half an hour later she contacted me about a project that she's working on and we became fast friends at that point. And she agreed to sit down with me and do an interview for the podcast. So I'm excited to share that with you over these next two weeks. I hope that you will enjoy it and be encouraged that there is hope and that God can offer the same transformation that he offered her to anyone who is ready to accept him as Lord and Savior. But before we get to that interview... Let's talk about what is going on. Well, the first story that I want to share with you is something pretty frightening coming out of a surprising place, the state of Texas. A Texas middle school is now apologizing to parents six months after students were asked to play a game in class by their teacher that had 13-year-old girls pretending to be, quote, seducing hookers. 
The school leader sharing this statement. Sometimes we stumble with activities, with actions or words like hooker or seduce should never have a place in our schools. While the intent was never to sexualize a child, I recognize that the impact may have caused students to feel uncomfortable or traumatized. Laura Maria Gruber pulled her daughter out of that school after learning about this. She joins me now. Laura, thank you for being with us. Tell us what happened. So exactly uh, what you know, guys shared. It was actually uh, boys and girls that were asked to participate in this game. Um, if you've heard of it or if you've Googled it, it's basically a replacement of rock, paper, scissors, which they could have just played rock, paper, scissors. Um, and it has children pose, role play, uh, a angry bear, a shooting, uh, shooting hunter to another peer, right? Pointing to another peer. And then a seducing hooker with a hand behind the ear and one on the hip. So that's, uh, they were lined up in order of maturity level, so youngest to oldest, uh, in one class. And then in another class, they were lined up, uh, or they were actually offered candy. So, And it was two separate teachers uh, in two separate classrooms. Oh, so this happened in more than one class. Yes, I got actually reports from three children, my child in one class, two children in another class were able to corroborate that it happened in two classes, yes. So your daughter came home and told you about this. Was it the day it happened? The moment, like the second I picked her up, yeah. Was she upset? She was absolutely, her word is cringed, absolutely grossed out, yes. So the school's response, what was their immediate response or was there one? Because now we're seeing six months later they're saying sorry. Is that good enough? Uh, no, it's not good enough, but their immediate response is like, okay, let's get, schedule a meeting, right? Which I had no idea that I was, I had never done a school grievance before. I had no idea what I was signing up for. Um, I met with the principal through Zoom a week later. Uh, so I, I requested the meeting um, on Monday. I was able to get on with her on a Friday. Um, and basically they do intake, they listen to you, and then they make you wait. Uh, I got a reply from her basically saying that she had uh, – um, granted some of the remedies that I requested, which were uh, a few. Uh, one of them that was granted was that uh, she had communicated, uh, sent a letter to parents saying that uh, there were counseling services or, you know, therapy services available at the school. Uh, what I didn't know is that they're actually, it never really referenced the game at all. So why are we sending a vague letter home saying that there's Counseling available at school when the parents don't know, you know, what, what that's for. Um, and then also, uh, she stated that although she felt the game was inappropriate, that she didn't consider it, uh, sexualization of children. And then from there, I appealed, uh, and I appealed to her boss, who's the deputy superintendent head of schools, uh, here in San Antonio. Uh, and he said the same thing. I support, you know, the first level. I also don't think that it was sexualization of children. The next guy told me the same thing. Who's the superintendent. This is the regional superintendent of schools here. Uh, I appealed and this was all over about a month to, you know, each, uh, I waited about a month or so between each reply. So here we are now at five months and I get, um, or four months and I get a reply back from the CEO of schools. So she's in charge of all Texas schools and tells me the same thing. You know, I, uh, support my, uh, my staff and I don't believe that, uh, that the kids receive sexual education through this. I don't believe uh, that kids were sexualized through this. Okay. So let me get this straight. We are in a place in our culture where you can play a game in a school classroom or some kind of school day camp setting 
It was unclear to me exactly what this was, but it was a school-sanctioned event. And you can play a game in this setting where someone literally is portraying a hooker and you can say that this is not a sexualization of children. This, to me, is the height of desensitization to major issues that are going on in our culture. This should not surprise us, however, because these are the same people that will say to us that certain texts addressing sexual issues to young children are non-pornographic and are important to the educational process. In days gone by, uh, you knew nothing about sexual issues from your school. That was something that was dealt with in the home setting. And now we're in a place where we're actually advocating having a game where someone is betraying a sex worker. This is extremely alarming, and the reason why I bring this up and other stories like it is because we need to be vigilant on the behalf of our children. And we need to realize that these things are happening and we need to be aware of them and have the proper response to them. I did a podcast several years ago, I think around um, the time of the COVID lockdowns, where I addressed dangerous parents and this idea that school officials do not want parents to have an influence on their children's activities. And this is just another instance where the school woefully underreacts to something very serious. I mean, you can say on one hand that this is just a game, but what it tells me is that it's symptomatic of a greater problem. And that is that we need to make sure that education in our schools is about reading, writing, and arithmetic and not about sexual issues. However you want to educate your children, these discussions need to happen in the home with the parents. This is the type of thing that the Proverbs is talking about when it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6 I've said before, and I'll say again, it doesn't matter what course of education you have chosen for your kids, you as the parent are the primary one who is responsible to lead and teach them. The next story I want to talk to you about is from the state of West Virginia. To West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey to talk more about this. Uh, General Morrissey, good of you to come with us uh, on this ride this afternoon. We appreciate it. The act is Thanks called for the Save. You. The act is called the Save Women's Sports Act. It was passed in April of 2021. Why did West Virginia feel there was a need for this bill? 
I think West Virginians are always looking to advance opportunities for women. And there's always been a sense that women's sports uh, is so beneficial for women, not only in terms of the actual competition, but after people participate in women's sports, uh, mm-hmm. many of them become leaders in our society. And I think if you look at Title IX, if you look at what West Virginia was trying to do, even the district court was very clear there was no animus in this decision, you know, based on the record. So I think West Virginia was trying to protect the integrity of women's sports, make sure when there are athletic competitions Mm -hmm. that they're being conducted fairly. And they concluded that if biological males wanted to participate in these female sports, that would be unfair. And so I think it was a very reasonable, common sense concept. What ended up happening is there was an early injunction slapped upon this law. But then we went through the really hard work 500 entries into the court, a mm-hmm. 3,000-page record showing the differences biologically between men and women and what happens in athletic so, competition. And then the local district court judge reversed himself and actually gave us a summary judgment on the merits. I think that speaks volumes to the approach that West Virginia used here. Unfortunately, the Fourth Circuit mm. turned around in a very quick manner, and then they slapped an injunction on again with no explanation, and we're going to the court to change that. So, General Morrissey, on the subject of the biological differences between males and females, that uh, opponents of allowing transgender women into women's sports say it lasts a lifetime. Uh, Riley Gaines, former University of Kentucky uh, swimmer, was with us yesterday. Uh, She is fighting very hard against allowing transgender women into into, uh, female sports. Here's what she told us yesterday. Listen here. If you believe in science, you know there is man and woman. Um, to deny that is to deny science. It's to deny logic. It's to not deny reason and, quite frankly, common sense. Men, on average, are taller, they're stronger, they're more powerful, faster than women. Um, again, to deny that is denying science. You know, of course, the example of Leah Thomas is always put out there. But the ACLU, and I think this is probably very strategic, is arguing on behalf of Becky Pepper Johnson. She is a transgender runner. Uh, she is only 12, has not gone through puberty yet. So this adds a level of complexity here because the ACLU can say, well, in Becky Pepper Jackson's case, there's not the differences that really emerged during puberty between males and females. So interestingly, in our record before the district court, we submitted a lot of information showing, in fact, the differences that occur uh, throughout when people are younger and into when they're older. And I think the information is very compelling about the athletic advantage that comes uh, to biological males. So now, obviously, all of that's in the district court record. Mm -hmm. Part of why we're going up to the Supreme Court is we're arguing that when you don't even issue much of a response, just a very terse response, slapping an injunction on, that's really uh, overturning the democratic process in the state of West Virginia. The people spoke through their elected representatives, and we need to go through this the right way. We're asking the court to set aside the injunction, then we'll go back up through the Fourth Circuit and handle this on the merits. So West Virginia is a state that decided that we do not want biological males to compete in women's sports. And there's a variety of reasons for this, even apart from 
the moral issue at stake. Obviously, as a believer, I believe that God made them male and female, that he made us with a purpose, and that's enough for me to say that this is a dangerous situation. But even apart from that, as we've discussed on previous episodes of this podcast, when you have a biological male competing with females on their playing field, he is going to have a distinct advantage. We talked a while back about in Connecticut where there was biological males dominating track and field championships um, because even the best females can't compete against a biological male. So now you have West Virginia fighting against that and saying we need to have a bill that says this is not allowed. So they passed it, and then the courts are in the process of deciding whether this law should stand. And I just think it's really interesting to hear from this swimmer, uh, Riley Gaines, who has a lot of courage, who's saying, this is the situation I've had to swim with this Leah Thomas character, and I have had to try to compete against this person who now is competing as a woman after competing as a man. And as a side fact, keep in mind that uh, a while back we talked about Leah winning a women's swimming competition, and this person blew the competition out of the water, even though the next closest competitor was actually an Olympic silver medalist. So there is definitely some unfair competition at play. But it goes much deeper than that. It really puts women at risk, and I think it's so important that West Virginia and other states are starting to address these issues and talk about them honestly. And I think the most telling thing in that clip that I just played was that the the complainant that is being used in this court case is a 12-year-old biological male who wants to compete as a woman. When I was 12, I was not able to make any positive decisions for myself about what to wear every day, what to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, if it was up to me, I would have three bowls of pre-sweetened cereal for breakfast. I'd have ice cream for lunch and, you know, maybe some fried chicken or hamburgers, um... For dinner, but nothing in the vegetable family. Because when I was 12, I didn't know what was good for me. Who did? My parents. Because it was their job to help me grow into a man who could then make decisions for myself. And it scares me that we are telling kids that previously were not able to make any sort of big decision for themselves. Kids that can't drive a car, can't vote, can't enlist in the service, 
that they can decide on their gender. And not only can they quote unquote decide on their gender, but if they like to play with dolls or if they like to play with cars, those two things in and of themselves can determine their gender and let them know that they have gender dysphoria. We no longer know what it's like to think it's okay for a guy to be in ballet or for a woman to be a tomboy. We just automatically think, well, they're in the wrong body. They're supposed to be someone else. When the reality is God made them male and female, he has a purpose for them being male and female, and in 80% of the cases, puberty helps them sort this issue out. And if you deny them the opportunity to experience puberty, which is what happens when you put puberty blockers into the mix, then there is no possible way for them to get the help that they need. And yes, they are using this person who has not yet gone through puberty to justify the case that a person of biological maleness can compete on an even level with females as long as puberty hasn't happened, but they're using it as a gateway to allow everyone else in. I have one more clip from this story because I think it's really important to hear the other considerations that come into play when something like this happens. You know, Lady Armistead, who is a uh, West Virginia State soccer player, is is going to be the face of, of your argument here. She she actually said that the differences, as you pointed out, occur earlier than puberty. She said, quote, I grew up playing under my dad's teams and then playing against my brothers. And I noticed from a really young age that there was a big biological difference even between my younger brother and me. Even though I was two years older, he was still stronger, fitter and faster than me. And then Riley Gaines brought up there's the issue of what happens in the locker room room. Here's how she described it when she was competing against Leah Thomas. Listen here. We competed against Thomas, but we were not forewarned um, beforehand that we would be sharing a locker room with Leah. We did not give our consent. They did not ask for our consent. But in that locker room, we turned around and there's a 6'4 biological man dropping his pants and watching us undress. And we're exposed to male genitalia. Uh, Jill, just to finish this off here, there's a lot of issues involved here. Well, look, I know that there are a lot of issues that come up with respect to athletic competition and what happens prior to that. But when you look at the story of Laney, when you see what happened with Riley Gaines and Leah Thomas, I think Americans are animated that they just want basic fairness in place. And that's all we're asking the U.S. Supreme Court for. I think it's a very straightforward case. Uh, If the Supreme Court agrees with us, it's going to go back. They're going to consider it on the merits. But you shouldn't just have a terse answer after a judge went through the entirety of the record. And this is a judge that was no fan of the law. And then he agreed with us. So we're optimistic. We're going forward. We have great respect for the court. Well, this is going to be a very important case. We'll be watching it. Attorney General Patrick Morrissey of the state of West Virginia. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it. You know, in the decade that I was going to college and a little bit beyond there, there was this big push for gender equality, for women to get the same respect uh, that men had gotten. And 
of course, I was already starting to speak out on these issues and say, you know, God made men and women different. It doesn't mean they're not equal. It means that God has a different plan for men and women. And now you have some of these same women who were on those front lines saying that it's perfectly okay for a man to become a woman. Actually undermining the very things that they fought for for so long. So I think we need to have an honest look at these things. I think we need to realize that there are dangers to having men and women in the same locker rooms changing. And a while back, I I think I referenced a story where you had a swim team where they allowed the transgender swimmer to change in the locker room and they made the other 10 or so members of the swim team take turns changing in a single stall bathroom because they expressed discomfort with being in the same room with this transgender swimmer. We're not talking about equality here, folks. We're talking about an agenda that is being pushed on our children. And we need to be willing to stand up and to make our voices heard because our children depend on us to do so. As I said, I am very excited to share with you my interview with Ginny Burton. I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion and you're really going to be blessed when you see how God has transformed her life. The difference truly is night and day and I'm excited to share it with you. Before I do that though, I want to share with you our quote of the day. Our quote of the day is, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And Ginny Burton is a perfect example of how that is the case. When God gets a hold of someone, he will change them from the inside out. And as you heard in that video at the beginning of the show, that is what God uh, did with Ginny. I'm so glad that Ginny is now a part of my life. She's been a blessing to me in the few short weeks we've been friends. And so, without further ado, here is the first part of my interview with Ginny Burton. Well, today it is my privilege to have a new friend of mine joining me for the podcast. Uh, This is Ginny Burton, and we're going to dig into her story as we go forward today. So I'm not going to say too much off the top, only to say that I feel like Ginny and I becoming friends uh, was really a God thing. And I think you'll see as things unfold how that actually makes sense. And it's just exciting to know that God is always working in our lives if we are paying attention. So welcome to the show, Ginny. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I appreciate you inviting me on. 
All right. Well, I know that you have quite the story to tell. Um, so why don't we lay the groundwork um, by talking about uh, your growing up years? So can you tell us a little bit about your growing up years? Where did you grow up and what sure. um, sticks out the most about your childhood? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot that sticks out, um, but it's sort of one overarching theme. So I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. I was born and raised in Tacoma, Washington to my parents. My dad uh, was not a Washington state native. Um, he had come to Washington uh, with the army. And then my mom, of course, was born in Tacoma, Washington. They met when they were pretty young and had a couple kids and I was one of them. All right. Well, it's interesting. I've been to a lot of different places throughout the country, but I've never been to the Washington area or that area of the country. I I have the kind of this goal of visiting all 50 states before I die. And uh, your area of the world is definitely, or I should say the country is definitely a place where I have yet to investigate. But um, I'm definitely interested to check it out. Although I did hear that it rains a lot yeah. um, in Washington. so It does, but it's uh, a beautiful state. We have a lot of mountains, a lot of trees. It's very green. We have um, a lot of folks that come here to visit because of our beautiful mountains and the sea. And uh, I think that if you come during uh, late spring or summer months, I think you will fall in love with the area. Awesome. Well, can you tell me a little bit about your family now? Sure. So, um, well, and just to give a little bit of context, uh, I come from a family where there are seven kids in my family and my mom was married five different times. Um, so, uh, my family now is I'm, I'm married. Uh, I've been with my husband for over nine years. Um, I have three children, uh, my oldest is 31. My second oldest is 30. And then my youngest will be 17 in June. Um, of course, the two older ones uh, live uh, and function independently because they're adults. I have one grandson. He's eight years old. Um, my husband and I live in uh, the Olympia area in western Washington, um, I have siblings. Um, as I said, I come from a family with seven kids. I have relationships with most of my siblings. Um, well, I'm on good terms with all of my siblings. However, I have particularly close relationships with a couple of them. Uh, my husband and I, again, we've been together for quite a while. We are very, very active. Um, he runs his own business. I have a couple of businesses. Um, yeah, but as a family, my youngest is getting ready to get her driver's license. Uh, she works, she goes to high school. She's pretty great kid. So despite the insanity of my life growing up, which it was pretty insane, which we haven't really gotten into too much, but, um, uh, my family is, it's doing a, it's doing a okay, but that's not to say I don't have challenges in my family. For example, two of my kids are not talking to me currently. Um, I've learned that it's not abnormal as a parent to go through things like that. So, um, however, I judged myself for a long period of time, um, because I wasn't, you know, what I consider to be a perfect parent. But what I do today, Andrew, is I just 
show up and try to do the best that I can, you know, in every area of my life, especially with my family, which is the area I tend to be most challenged in because I think that if we're closer to people, we're a little more likely to, um, to be comfortable being our authentic self. And sometimes that can be a challenge. That is definitely true. And I can resonate with you with growing up in a big family. I'm the oldest of 12 children, actually. Oh, yeah. And that's a lot. So I have uh, 28 nieces and nephews, um, 14 nephews, 14 nieces. So life is always a party when we get together. And there is, you know, always challenges of getting that many people together and having the myriad of conversations that we do. But I'm blessed, as you said, to have a a good relationship with all of them and a close relationship with a few. So, yeah, I, I really feel blessed to be in my family, and I can definitely relate to you on the big family level. It's a different environment. A lot of people think nowadays, especially, that they have a big family if they have three or four. And so I just always chuckle and inwardly roll my eyes when I hear people say that because – I know what a big family actually is. Um, but uh, moving on with our questions, um, one of the reasons that I met you was because I came across your story on a human interest page that I follow. Um, I believe the gentleman's name is Eric Johnson, and he talked about your journey from addiction to recovery. And I, saw the video and I thought it was a really interesting uh, story. And so of course I wanted to watch it and I actually couldn't get the video to work that night. So I scrolled through and found your Facebook page and I gave it a follow. um, Hoping actually, I think that I could find the video on your page later when the internet was working better. And so that was my plan. And then you reached out to me from there and we connected and it looks like we're going to be working on a pretty awesome project. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey from addiction to recovery? Absolutely. So, you know, there's some stuff that I didn't really get into much about uh, growing up in my childhood. So at a very young age, I was introduced to drugs. Um, My family was riddled with um, chaos, addiction, violence, abuse, um, crime, prison, things like that from very early on. Um, it, the insidiousness, uh, of drugs and alcohol bled through to every area of my life from a young child on into my adulthood. Um, so at a really young age, I was, um, tested as gifted, and, and academically, and um, I don't even know if I said that right, but so, you know, I was academically advanced um, and I did a test before I started school. I started school a year earlier than everybody else. Um, and I had big, high hopes and dreams. Um, I really, really enjoyed um, educational settings. I kind of found solace on, the, you know, at school and 
I didn't really realize that my life was so chaotic until after my dad went to prison in 1976. And that's when I, I recognized that there were some serious challenges between my mom and I. And so she was the one that introduced me to drugs a few years later. A lot of folks get, you know, very, um, protective over the very young version of myself and, and tend to judge my mom. But, you know, I really believe that we as human beings do the best that we can with what we have. Uh, I don't believe my mom had the skills necessary to, uh, raise seven children. Um, and so, you know, she did what, she thought would be appropriate. And, and it had a massive effect on my life. Um, and for a long time, I was very angry about that. I thought that if there was a God, I was pretty mad that God would allow that to happen. And what happened is I followed suit, Andrew. I, uh, at a young age had children. Um, my first child, um, mind you, I started using, like I said, at I, I was seven years old. I started smoking marijuana. Not long after that, I started to drink alcohol. By the time I was 12 years old, I was doing methamphetamine and cocaine. Uh, by the time I was 14, I was smoking crack. Um, and so the trajectory of my life changed very much. When I was in third and fourth grade, I thought that I would be uh, an attorney um, when I grew up. However, you know, my life took a very different route. And, um, you know, there was a lot of violence and abuse, which really contributed to my downward spiral. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, I, I hated God, uh, or the idea of God. I hated my existence, um, and the more violent life was toward me, including, you know, violence from people like my mom, um, the more aggressive I became outwardly with my behavior. And so, you know, drugs, violence and crime, they're just a terrible combination, um, and they really, really have a massive impact on on the lives of the people that they affect, you know, both personally and the people that, you know, are affected um, through external behaviors. And so, um, you know, what and what I guess I'm trying to say is uh, is that I became my environment. So it took me a really long time to to get there. I started going to prison um, as an adult. Uh, after having kids, you know, my son's dad was murdered when I was pregnant and then I got pregnant a second time. And, and then my oldest daughter's dad got a life without sentence. Um, at that point I was in and out of prison. And so, you know, but every time I was incarcerated, it gave me an opportunity to ponder my circumstances, to have a time of clarity where I could think about, you know, what did I want my life to look like? And, you know, but I just didn't have the skills necessary to get there. But, you know, sort of the journey toward changing the trajectory started long before I was ever able to stop because we don't have a system that's really set up to uh, accommodate an individual changing their life. And so, you know, it took a really long time. However, at the age of 40, um, after continuing to beat my face against the wall over and over again, trying to get through the wall, um, you know, I was arrested for the last time and that was a little bit over 10 years ago. Um, and it was during that time, mind you, I had tried to get clean and sober a few times prior to this experience. Um, and I gained a little bit of momentum. I learned a little bit, uh, uh, you know, skills and, uh, you know, accrued some abilities to enable a different kind of life. Um, but I just hadn't really adopted on the will to stick 
with stuff. I allowed my emotions to um, dominate everything I did. I didn't have a skill set to navigate emotions. And so, you know, when things got hard, I got going. And what that usually meant was I got going to the drug house and and I would escape my reality because life was really uncomfortable. And so uh, when I finally was arrested this last time in 2012, at the age of 40, I it didn't matter to me uh, what had to happen. I was willing to do whatever it took to stop destroying my life. And so, you know, and, and just to give a little bit of context. So between the ages of seven and 40, I'd been in multiple abusive relationships. I had been an abuser, um, 28 years of drug use, violence, guns, um, multiple sexual assaults. Um, I've shot people. People have shot me. I've stabbed people. People have stabbed me. I've been beaten, kidnapped. Um, I've done similar things to other people. And, you know, so there was like this, just this really long, long, uh, duration of insanity. Um, and in the process, you know, I abandoned my children and they were being raised by the state. So all of the things that I had planned on doing in life, I had abandoned all of those things. And I, and I couldn't stand the woman that was standing in the mirror looking back at me at the age of 40 when I was looking at my fourth prison sentence. And so, um, you know, I was willing to do whatever it took because I was pretty mad. God, you know, through the shooting and ending up in the uh, intensive care uh, at Madigan Hospital in, in Washington, um, which was a trauma unit, um, you know, through multiple uh, overdoses and different things like that. Um, and living through it, I realized that maybe there was something else that was supposed to be going on with me. But I knew that it could not exist in that space. Uh, in the state that I was in, in the mental state that I was in, it was like living in purgatory. And so, you know, I went, I embarked upon this journey. It didn't matter whether it happened in prison or whether wherever it happened, I didn't care. I just wasn't willing to continue to live in that way. And so over the last 10 years, um, you know, I've stuck with that surrender and, and I started to recognize that the idea of surrender was just moving over to the winning team, right? I wasn't. Uh, abandoning anything. I was abandoning my self-destruction. And, and so I, you know, I started out with this really simple process, which was first thought wrong. So if I, you know, had an automatic response to something, I wanted to reconsider that. And, and how I changed my behavior was I, I just did the opposite of what I would normally do. And so I started to practice that very simple process, um, you know, and so I was waiting in jail uh, to go back to prison. Um, you know, I was fighting some cases. I had five more felony charges and um, I, uh, you know, I got down on my knees and I started to talk to God and, um, you know, I had a really profound experience with a number of things. I asked God, how do you, how do I stay clean? And, you know, through meditation, it was it was given to me that I don't put drugs in my body. That's how I don't get loaded. I just, and it, it was like unbelievable to me that it was such a simple process. And so, you know, but there have been some other things that, that have helped me really sort of stay on track, you know? And so I align myself with other people that are moving in the same direction. I have a host of friends and support um, who are former drug addicts that are now living clean. Um, you know, I also participate in other environments with people that are moving in a different direction, you know, that sort of have elevated 
their own lives, you know, through accomplishment and um, hard work and education. And so, you know, I align myself with, um, with these people and, and, you know, and what they do is they model to me how I can show up differently in the world. And, and so over the last 10 years, I've not gotten loaded one day at a time. I don't put drugs or alcohol into my body. Uh, I don't drink coffee. I don't smoke cigarettes. Uh, I also have a relationship with mountains. I started hiking and backpacking, solo backpacking. And then, and then I met a guy, I joined a church and I met a guy who, uh, climbs mountains and he, uh, has been teaching me skills since about 2017. And so I started to climb mountains. Um, I'm a member of a recovery community that I am involved in and I participate in regularly. Um, you know, again, I am a member of a church. The church is worldwide. And, um, you know, I, and so I practice that and I try to show up differently in my life, um, every day with my family, with my friends and just, you know, how I would normally do things. And, you know, the process that I have implemented in my life, you know, I made a decision and I, and I documented that process and, and, and today I get to share that with other people. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of the, a little, I think it's a little bit longer than an elevator version of my, of my experience with addiction and recovery, but that's kind of the gist of it. And, you know, today on a daily basis, one day at a time, I live free from the insanity that I once lived in because, uh, I make a conscious decision every single day. Well, it's exciting to hear your story, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast because I've heard bits and pieces of your story from you and through that news presentation that I saw. But I wanted to just sit down with you and hear a longer version, so I'm thankful that you took the time today. Um, so as you're going through this process of recovery, I know you got to a point where you came to the end of yourself. And you've talked about some of the steps that you put in place to continue to be a success. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about how your personal relationship with Jesus came into play? Um, what, did you start going to chapels in prison or how did you get to know him? Sure. Well, in my very first marriage, I married a guy that grew up in the Jehovah's Witness Church. So um, granted, uh, my initial engagement with Christ was kind of distorted. Um, that's where I first sort of learned about Jesus. Well, that's not true. When I was four years old, there was a bus that used to come around. I lived in an impoverished area uh, in the ghetto, essentially, in project housing. And um, and there was a bus that used to come around and pick us up. And, and I remember it, there was this church, it was Temple Bethel Church, and, you know, we would pull up and there was this one time and they asked if, if people had been saved and, and if they wanted to be saved. And so I raised my hand and I stayed on the bus. And I really, honestly, I believe that when I accepted Christ into my heart, and this is, some people know this story, some people don't. Um, I really believe, honestly, that I invited something that has kept me safe for all of these years. And mind you, I'm 50 years old. Uh, this year, I'll be 51 in October. But um, so I really believe that, that, you know, this power sort of entered my life maybe at that time, probably before, honestly. But um, so my first engagement was around the age of three or four. Um, but again, I married this guy. uh I want to say I was 19 when I got married the first time. 
Um, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. Mind you, weird stuff would happen. He, we would get high and he would read stuff out of the Bible. But it did introduce me to the Bible. So I was in and out of jail for a long time. And so back in 19... Gosh, I want to say maybe 1992, 93. Uh, I was in jail serving a four-month sentence. And and I read most of the Bible. And I had this really profound experience. Um, it's changed some things. It made me feel differently when I read it. I read like I read it like a book. And so... Um, I just had a different experience. I, you know, some of my behaviors that had always been there subsided. Um, it woke something up inside of me and, and, you know, it planted some seeds. It didn't grow roots at that time, but I never forgot the experience that I had as a result of reading it. So, you know, fast forward a number of years, um, 2008, 2009, I, I went back to prison for a third time and um, I never forgot that experience that I had back in the nineties. And so I, um, well, I also studied religion for a semester. Uh, it was required in it with the school that I was going to. Um, and so I learned a little bit, but I didn't have like a personal revelation with that. But, um, but when I went to prison the last time, in 2009, uh, I did. I started to investigate a number of churches. I have remembered that experience that I had um, in uh, the early 90s. And uh, and I was looking for something more. And so, uh, you know, I had a pretty amazing experience while I was in prison. I was searching for a home church when I got out. My In my heart, I knew I needed to find one. Um, but I was unsuccessful in doing so. And, you know, uh, again... The roots did not take, they didn't take, the sand was, you know, shallow and, um, you know, so, so yeah, so it fell to the wayside and I ended up, you know, sort of going back into that place again. When I was arrested in 2012, um, I hadn't forgotten any of those experiences. Uh, I got on my knees and I had some really, really profound spiritual experiences that couldn't be explained um, by human beings. And, and it was something very personal. And, um, that is when I really sort of, um, went, you know, went into an intentional relationship with Christ. And so, um, again, I let some of that fall to the wayside for a period of time, but in 2016, I was assaulted in my home, uh, violently. And, I made the decision to stay with the person. I had him prosecuted. Uh, it was my significant other. We're still married today. Uh, and so I went out on a mountain to leave his memory there. And I was praying and meditating about it. And and what I received in meditation is that I was supposed to stay with this person. I had absolutely no idea how I was going to do that. However, uh, it was given to me in prayer and meditation that if I was to be successful, I would have to have a, a Christ-centered life. And so I made the decision at that time to join a church. I was looking for something and something was consistently manifesting in my life in a number of ways. And so uh, I made a decision to investigate that specific church. And, um, and, and so I was baptized into the church in 2017 um, I have been an active member ever since. Uh, it's absolutely 
changed my life. It's fed me in ways that um, no one else ever has. But I have an intentional relationship. Aside from the church, my relationship with Christ is separate from that. That just sort of strengthens me um, the same way that recovery does. Um, you know, I'm just around a, a body of Christ centered people, but I have an intentional relationship with Christ. I read scriptures every morning and every night. I pray. I'm very intentional about it. Sometimes I'm a little surface, but you know, um, I consistently sort of stay in this relationship and, um, and it's led all of the things that I do in my life. Um, like the work that I'm doing today, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, in a little bit, but, um, you know, it's all the result of prayer. I have a very strong testimony, uh, of, you know, the power of, um, a relationship with Christ. It's, it's very interesting to, to hear you say that about how you really realized number one, that you needed to get into a, a more personal and profound relationship with Christ. And then also that you were convicted to stay with your husband. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's profound to me because so many people leave over relatively trivial things mm. compared to what you went through. And yet God called you to stay. I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more how that process worked because yeah, obviously yeah. you had to deal with some stuff, work through some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did that, how did that shake out? <laughs> well, it's good. Um, yeah, it's so, first of all, it's very hard. I come from a long history of abuse and trauma. Um, you know, some things about my husband, first of all, he was raised in a, a very religious family. Um, he, you know, sort of removed himself from that trajectory, but, um, so, and I didn't really know that for a long time. And then I learned that later. Um, however, um, you know, yes, I was challenged because the assault was pretty severe. Uh, he was facing an astronomically long sentence because of it. The whole entire thing was caught on 911 tape. But, you know, um, and then to have me spiritually, I have a very strong spiritual contact with God. And uh, and I trust my gut and my internals today. Um, and I really believe that because I didn't listen to that still small voice for so many years, that is why my life was so chaotic. I really, truly believe that with everything in me. So um, because as I've listened to it over the last 10 years, my life is far less painful than it ever was. And so, you know, I think that's really important to mention. And so, you know, to be obedient to that can be hard. It's been the hardest thing I've ever experienced. And and I really knew going into the idea of staying in this relationship was going to be hard. But what's happened for me, Andrew, is it's refined me in ways, right? I grew up kind of like a feral cat. Uh, there was a lot of chaos. There was not a lot of structure. I mean, there was some structure, but it was very abusive in nature. And, um, so my patterns and my foundation were really built in insanity in a lot of ways. And so, um, you know, so what's happened for me by staying in this relationship and, li- and listening to God, uh, you know, A, I've had to identify a lot of my own challenges um, and know internally, you know, we as human beings tend to go to other people to get our own personal opinions, right? It's like, oh, 
oh, I don't know if people will accept this. Let me go and see what they say. And then I'll follow their advice and, um, you know, whatever. But like God has really put on my heart that other people's opinions have nothing to do with my own personal path. Right. Um, listening to other people's opinions and then not following their advice, like, because they don't have your same experience, it often causes a whole lot of extra problems. Um, you know, I have an internal testimony of knowing what I need to do and then not doing it. And, and also using other people's opinions to not show up for what I know I'm supposed to spiritually be responsible for, if that makes sense. And so, you know, so one of the biggest things was, you know, learning that uh, I have to trust God and that what, you know, and listen to my promptings. Um, and so, you know, moving forward into the relationship, my husband and I, I believe I've really refined each other. There were things he wasn't aware of and there were things that I wasn't aware of and with our own personal self. Um, we have both grown tremendously as human beings. Uh, we have a very, very strong relationship. We work really hard to have our relationship centered in Christ. Um, but more than anything, like we work really hard to have a relationship that is respectful of the other one. Um, we've been together for going on 10 years and um, it's the longest I've ever been in a relationship with another person aside from, you know, uh, immediate family. And so, um, you know, and we get the opportunities through the experiences that we've had to ask ourselves, you know, when we feel we're at a breaking point, you know, have I done everything in my power to try to make sure that I'm showing up as the best person that I can, right? A person in Christ, like what would Christ do? Um, would he have me, you know, end things frivolously? Because another thing that has happened for me too, um, is recognizing the patterns in my relationships, especially intimate relationships and, you know, repeating cycles over and over again. And so that's another thing that God really showed me is that um, if I end this relationship, there's a high likelihood I'm going to be um, attracted to a similar personality type. And then have to repeat the entire process again, um, you know, and then learning about myself as well um, is that my insecurities, my fear, all of those things come up when I'm unfamiliar with a person. So my husband and I know each other very well. Um, now, that's not to say so my husband was very different. I've been with people that have been abusive in the past and my husband isn't the kind of guy that walks around just demeaning and and being crazy. That's not to say that I haven't been that person because I definitely have. But so there, you know, there were some things that, you know, we had sort of a starting point that wasn't super crazy and we were both also interested in working toward the same goal so you know if there's somebody that's listening to this and they've been in violently physical abusive um situations and they say oh well maybe i'm supposed to stay in the relationship you know only you can be the one to make that decision um, however, like knowing myself and understanding my, the dynamic of my relationship, the thing that caused the biggest problems in my relationship was the fact that my husband had relapsed on drugs. Um, other than that, he was a pretty kind person. Um, 
he came from a very different background than mine, but we were both very open and transparent about ourselves and each other and what we wanted in the relationship. And we made commitments to work towards things intentionally. Now that's not to say that we've done any of these things perfectly, but you know, it wasn't like we were walking around and, you know, beating each other up on a regular basis. So you know, uh, before a person says, oh, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'd really like, you know, take take things into real consideration. If you're being harmed on a regular basis, you know, remove yourself from the situation. If the other person isn't willing and open and transparent about their part and you're not doing the same, you know, you may be setting yourself up for a continued abuse. Um so I think it's really important to assess situations. But in regards to my situation, you know, Christ played a major role. My husband was willing to practice a relationship, a Christ-centered relationship where we were, you know, willing to come into, you know, our personal relationship and involve, you know, some other folks that we consider professionals or, you know, from the church that, you know, could sort of guide us. Um, most people would be traumatized if they heard the experience that we had on 911. Um, but my husband and I recognized that the best people to work on that thing with was each other because other people wouldn't understand. But, you know, we have worked really hard to try to do that from a position of love. And what's resulted from that is, um, a very strong friendship, uh, trust. Um, you know, even we've been separated for months and sometimes years at a time, and we've been faithful to each other. Um, but, and we've built our relationship around an intimate, um, friendship and connection. And so, um, you know, it's been the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And it's also been one of the most beautiful things that I've ever done in my life. And, um, you know, if, and it's also helped me to recognize how frivolous human beings can be when something happens and they end a relationship without really trying to work on it. But, you know, for me, it's, I really got to this place where, you know, if the answer is no to, you know, uh, certain questions, then, then I have to put, you know, commit to trying to fix that. And, and for me, you know, the answer was, would I be with my husband intimately, physically, uh, when he was released, the answer to that was yes. So I needed to not put anything in between that. Um, the other question was, have I done everything in my power to try to resolve this situation for myself? And if the answer to that is no, then I have no business trying to move on anywhere else. And the only way that I can be really aware of those things is, is by inviting um, my Heavenly Father into the equation. Oh, absolutely. And I want to make it very clear that I totally agree with you. If, if there is abuse going on, you need to get intervention. You need to get away from that situation so that other people can speak into the situation. But what prompted me to ask you to, um, give you a little more information on that was I saw a, a meme on Facebook. We all know that's the great place to go for wisdom, right? <laughs> but somebody shared a meme on Facebook, I think this morning or even yesterday. And it said, I'm teaching my daughter to leave a relationship if she's unhappy. Yeah. And so that, that always makes me cringe when I see things like that because we have this illusion that the goal of a relationship is to be happy 24 seven. 
And what I have seen in my parents through their almost 45 years of marriage is that their strength is not in being happy 24-7. Their strength is because they know that when they stood before uh, the altar uh, 45 years ago, they were making their vow to God and to each other, and that walking away is not the right thing to do in most situations because a lot of times it just means that you have to make a renewed commitment to one another and a renewed commitment to communication. So I was really encouraged by your story because I think that speaks so heartily to one of the problems that we have in our culture today, which is it's everybody else's responsibility to make me happy 24 seven, instead of saying, God's goal isn't to make you happy, it's to make you holy. And right. happiness can be the result, as you have been telling us, but it's not the goal. Yeah, I think happiness is connected to acceptance. And, you know, we, it is very problematic. We live in a very instantaneous society that's it's not real. Um, all of immediate gratification endeavors led me to this place of destruction granted it's benefited my life but i wouldn't recommend to anyone that you know you just keep on quitting things if it doesn't appeal to you you know and what we do when we quit we're ignoring our responsibility in our circumstances we're expecting other people to come to the table to make things comfortable for us and that's just not realistic one of the things that i've noticed and this is one of the things that i shout from the rooftops is that if i want something different i have to do something different you know and changing the face of the individual that i'm engaging with is not the answer uh my my husband sent me a meme last night and you know, we have this sort of perspective as human beings that if, you know, that the grass is greener on the other side, but it's not. The grass is greener where you water it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So watering is very important. And there you have the first part of my interview with Jenny Burton. I was really blessed uh, to sit down and talk to this amazing young lady And I'm excited to share with you the balance of our conversation next week. I'm really excited that she reached out to me and asked me to be a part of her Nashville, Tennessee initiative in May. I'm excited to share my life experiences and the hope that she and I can work together to continue uh, the legacy that she is leaving of helping others to overcome. Really, the Christian life is all about overcoming and about persevering through a long journey. So many times when we share the gospel, well-meaning though we may be, we convey the idea that if we trust Jesus, all of our problems will disappear. But as the Apostle Paul said, I asked the Lord three times to remove my thorn in the flesh, and he said no. Instead, he said My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. God never said that he would take away all of our problems if we trusted him. He only said that he would walk with us through those problems and make us overcomers in spite of those problems. 
that's about all I have to share with you today. I just hope that you have a wonderful week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.